Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Justin Davis. Justin is a former professional hockey player, and what a hockey journey it has been. Drafted 85th overall in the 1996 NHL Draft by the Washington Capitals, Justin led the Ottawa 67s to the 1999 Memorial Cup Championship. He then led the University of Western Ontario Mustangs to the 2002 University Club Championship while completing his kinesiology degree, and still, to this day, he remains Western's all-time points leader. After a two-year stint playing professionally in Germany, Justin completed his career in 2014 by winning Canada's Senior Hockey Championship, the Allen Cup, with the Dundas Real McCoys. But his career also included disturbing accounts of hazing rituals, suffering 10 to 15 concussions, one of which saw him hospitalized with brain bleed, struggles with mental health and depression and anxiety, and even getting arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. He ended up writing a book without intending to write a book, and the title of his recently published memoir is Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL. Welcome, Justin, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, I'm currently in Guelph, Ontario, where uh, I live with my wife and three kids, and I'm a high school teacher in Orangeville as well. Well, you just read my next question because, as you note, high school teacher and a hockey coach and a family of your own, maybe talk a little more about life today for Justin Davis and what your family is up to. Yeah, busy. Uh, I got a 17-year-old son who plays baseball in London for the uh, Great Lake Canadians. I've got two daughters playing rep soccer. My wife's a teacher, so... Uh, happily busy and uh, moving around the province, but uh, yeah, a dad and coach. Fabulous. And uh, I understand that your Orangeville Bears have won seven league titles in the past 12 seasons, including this season. Congrats. Yeah, it's been uh, great. People always worry about hockey at the highest level, and I think the high school level, it's just a great opportunity to coach kids that you teach in the classroom as well. So it's been uh, uh, a lot of fun over the years. The subtitle of your memoir is An Average Hockey Player's Journey. But let's be clear, you are not average, Justin. As noted, you won a Memorial Cup, you won a University Cup, an Allen Cup, you played professionally in Germany, and you were, in fact, drafted by the Washington Capitals. A minuscule number of hockey players actually end up getting drafted by an NHL team, so you clearly ain't average. But there is a hierarchy that exists in hockey culture, and there is the reality that at some point you are just not going to be good enough go to the next level. So why did you call yourself an average player? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me, it was representing the journey that all my friends and people that I played with in junior hockey, I think so many times we feel like uh, junior hockey players, people haven't played the game, lift them up to this level. But for me, that was the average journey. And these are the guys I'd been around my whole life. And so I want to represent what happens to these guys that we don't see in the NHL playoffs. And, uh, signing million-dollar contract. So I felt like I was representing, in my world, I guess, the average hockey player. Now, initially, you did not set out to write a book, but rather you found that all your championship rings and your jerseys, they, they weren't on display. They were hidden away. How did that get you started on, on beginning to put your story on, onto paper? I started to realize that my kids really didn't even know who I was and didn't know that I played. And I was coaching AAA hockey, 10 and 11-year-olds. And I think they looked at you like you're just a dad who's was coaching them. So I felt like I needed to get my story out. Uh, I'd gone through short-term disability with some back injuries and was dealing with some post-concussion issues as well. And I see so many friends go down a a bad road uh, physically. And I thought, you know what, I'll write 10 or 11 pages to my kids and we'll just tuck it away in a drawer. And and, uh, when I'm ready to give it to them, then uh, they can read about their dad. 
Well, I really love the way your memoir, Conflicted Scars, has been constructed. I'm a very linear guy. It's basically 10 chapters, one chapter dedicated to each of the stops on your hockey journey, with an 11th and final chapter dedicated to your hopes for the future of hockey culture. Now, I don't want to use up your whole day here, Justin, so we, we won't go deep into each one, but it would really please me if you could give us kind of a sample from each of these stages of your journey. Chapter one covers birth to first lacing up the skates playing minor hockey in Flamborough A, Halton AAA, entitled, Remember, I'm Seven. You were a phenomenal scorer in a small town. Yeah, back then, um, I mean, I, I'm going to refer to like it's like 50 years ago, but I, I think I'm the old guy now again. But when we played hockey, we played with our buddies in small towns. The best players still stayed and played in the small towns. Our parents wouldn't drive an hour and a half to play AAA hockey. So uh, I was fortunate enough where I was a, a really good player, but each town had these really good players. And I would score 300 and 400 goals a, a year or I'd go to a game and score a hat trick. And, and just going through the process of writing the book, I realized why well, I have so many insecurities that I do because there's points in the game where seven years old, people are banging on the glass and giving you the finger and yelling at you. And you come out of the lobby and your own team's parents don't like you. And you're not trying to score three or four goals. I remember like being on a breakaway and just peeling off and delaying and looking for somebody else to pass the puck to. So Although you you think kids are seven and unaware of what's going on, I, I started very quickly to just feel like this resentment from other people to the point my parents would wait in the car and I'd sneak out a side door sometimes and meet them. Or if I won an MVP award or a, a medal, I would hide it and kind of my bag and, and just kind of keep my head down. So that's why I kind of felt like it led me to be an introvert later in life and just afraid to kind of share my accomplishments. And maybe that's why I called the book like the average player's hockey journey, because I, I still feel this inside. But uh, yeah, it wasn't until I started writing this process, and people may say, like, first world problems, oh, was <laughs> tough life, you scored four goals a game, must have been so difficult, but yeah. it's the anxieties and, and, and things that build up over, and I was just trying to figure out through the journey, and this is where I started, like how I became who I am today. Well, chapter two covers your jump up to Junior C for the Flamborough Gamblers, and this one's entitled, A Boy in a Man's World. A, a Junior C coach said, uh, do you want to play hockey next year in, in town? And he said, we got fans, and give you a free stick, a couple of sticks and and skates. And I thought this was great. I realized very quickly, I was a 14 year old playing with 21 year olds and some had returned from the OHL and being 6'4 and 135, 140 pounds and a league where it wasn't uncommon for someone to show up to your team to fight someone else and you never see them again or shoot a pocket someone in the other end and start a warm up brawl. It, it was a great time, but just like is terrifying for a, for a grade nine kid playing with 21 year olds. And I joke, this is where I learned, I think I learned on the bus, my sex ed lessons. And I learned a lot of things probably I shouldn't have, but uh, it, it was a quick, quick uh, maturation to the game of hockey. Well, and you quickly moved up. Chapter three covers your jump from junior C to junior B in Cambridge and your introduction to someone you call the potato farmer. Yeah. And the potato farmer, I said coffee with, and he just sold his potato farm for about $4 million. So we don't want to downplay what a potato farmer is, but uh, it was a coach uh, named Spud, and I'd been cut from uh, Cowden Junior A, and uh, I was ready to billet there. That was my first kind of discouragement in the game of hockey where I was told I was going to play there and billet, and then they cut me after the first tryout. So uh, think how bad you have to be when you have a billet in place, and uh, hey, they cut you after your first tryout. But I ended up... Uh, uh, my agent at the time called and said, I've got this guy in Cambridge who's a potato farmer. He's a great guy, great coach, and would he like to come back and play there? So 
I was lucky enough. You wonder why things happen and things happen for a reason. And he was a great mentor for me and ended up playing for him later on with uh, the Dundas Real McCoys when we get to that. But uh, he definitely had a point in my life and lucky enough to have a, a fantastic year and play with some great teammates. Well, you did have success and chapter four concerns your draft to the Ontario Hockey League, major junior hockey. You were drafted by the Kingston Frontenacs, but you thought you were just leaving for the weekend when you went to their training camp. What happened there? I think the year before I thought I was going to be drafted by Sudbury. They told me to come to the draft and uh, I sat there and he had to go in the first three rounds when you're that age and I didn't get drafted. So I was kind of surprised and didn't know what had happened. So I was kind of soured on the OHL from that process. And I talked to Boston University and a couple other universities and I thought that was the route for me. So I went to Kingston, I think with two pairs of underwear, a pair of pants and a toothbrush and, and said, I'm just going to skate for 48 hours because that's the rule where you can keep your eligibility and I'm going to come home. But uh, after you play in front of some fans in the OHL and people ask for your autograph and uh, you have the half visor on, they called me into the office and said, we'd like to sign you. And I said, let me call my mom. And I think it ended up my dad and I just calling my mom to say I'd signed and never came home. So it was, uh, I think, a shock to the system. Didn't expect in that three-hour car ride that I'd never really live at home again. Well, while you were still in the OHL, Chapter 5 covers a very super exciting event in your life, this being the NHL draft. As noted, you were chosen 85th overall by the Washington Capitals in the 96th draft, the same round, by the way, that Zidane Charo was taken. You then went, just into a training camp where you were suddenly on the ice with NHL players that you had just been in your living room playing on as video game players. That must have been surreal for you. Yeah, surreals are a, a good word. And I think when you're on there and you're hesitant at first, but I think like everything, people say, why don't you like hockey at a certain point in your life? Or when did uh, the kind of the sunglasses come off? And, and that's when you see these people, right? And you're you're, sometimes you don't want to see your heroes behind the scenes and then see that they're these normal people and you lift them up to this level. But uh, yeah, it was it was definitely an experience you never forget. And I think kind of my downfall is I, I just uh, never felt like I belonged at that level with these guys. And I think other people turn it off very quickly, but just a great experience. And I lived in Washington for uh, three months that summer and trained with NHL players. And, uh, and it was uh, obviously a great part of my journey. Well, chapter six describes a difficult period in your life. You went from the Kingston Frontenacs to another OHL team, the Sioux Greyhounds. It was to be exciting. You were joining Jumbo Joe Thornton for a playoff run, but you had a horrible experience during a game playing for the Sioux in Detroit. I know you've told this probably too many times and it's in your book, but maybe you want to just give us a little overview of that the terrible experience you had in Detroit. Yeah, I think obviously it's a story I've told a lot, but a story that needs to be told because you still watch these NHL games and, and you see these people that everyone knows that they're concussed and uh, something bad has happened and, and yet you see them come back on the ice. So uh, I was playing in a game in Detroit. I'd made a pass, took three steps up the ice and uh, had taken a, a, a big hit kind of from the side behind and uh, the guy got a five-minute major, but I was knocked unconscious and uh, uh, was convulsing and I had that um, syndrome where your hands kind of freeze uh, in the air and uh, with major spinal uh, spinal cord injuries and brain injuries. And it wasn't good. So I was taken to the dressing room. Uh, I came to in the dressing room after about three or four minutes. Uh, my my dad and my grandma were there at the time. And just from their view as a dad now, they came down to the glass. And when you see your, your son convulsing on the ice, it can't be easy. So it's taken to the dressing room. They said that I was okay. I had a concussion and I could take the bus home to the Sioux. So uh, I wasn't feeling great, got on the bus, started throwing up everywhere. 
Um, the trainer came back to check on me and I said, I think I'm all right. And they said, okay, keep going. So their goal is to get me to Canada so that they wouldn't have to pay the U.S. medical bills. Uh, and I just kept throwing up and throwing up and eventually passed out. And, uh, the guys in the back of the bus are like, he's like, he's not doing well. And eventually the trainer stood up and said, we need to get him to a hospital. And, uh, I got, came into the hospital, was admitted to ICU with bleeding on the brain immediately and, uh, and spent three days there in the trainer got back on the bus and the team left back to, to go because we were in the playoffs and I was kind of left in the hospital till my mom got there the next day to take uh, take care of me and eventually uh, I was charged with the uh, $15,000 medical bill because it didn't happen in Canada and I played in the quote-unquote Ontario Hockey League and and that was a fight that uh, that we endured and and had to force the team eventually to pay my medical bill. Well what a nightmare the good news is though Justin and you talked about this in chapter 7 a huge positive change in your life happened when you got traded from the Sioux to the Ottawa 67s and you met the man known as the killer, Brian Kilray, considered the greatest junior hockey coach of all time. He, in fact, had such an impact on you that you asked him to write the foreword to your book. What changed in your life meeting Brian and how was he so impactful on your, uh, not only as a player, but as a person? It sounds like a basic need, but he, he just treated people like they're a human. So he could get mad at you, but he'd see how you're doing after. And uh, he'd ask you about your life and he just tried to make you a better person. And he, he let you live. Like He didn't ask you to be at this place at six o'clock and be at your billet's house at nine and be home by 11 and just kind of live your life because you feel like you miss out on uh, and so many of those those things. And it was just a breath of fresh air. And I think mostly, it's funny, I found out with all these old coaches, these old school coaches, you think, oh, they must be into fighting and all these different things and playing physical. And Brian just told me for the first time, just score. You, like, you're a great scorer. Just go out and score. I don't need you to fight. And you'd see these teams putting their tough guys out or trying to run guys. And Brian would just counteract it by keeping his best players out on the ice, sometimes for seven minute shifts against their, against their tough guys to say, you can do that. We're not going to fight, but we're going to score three or four times. So I got just a breath of fresh air for a, for a young kid and, uh, and just an encouraging guy. He looks tough on the exterior, but he's a, uh, he's a pretty sensitive guy. Well, he certainly had positive impact on you. Another impactful person in your life was someone very well known around here, former Toronto Maple Leaf, Lori Boschman. How'd you come into contact with him and, and what was his role in your life? Yeah, I'd grown up uh I'd grown up in a Christian home and um with hockey it's tough. Like you're not going to you're not going to church on Sunday and obviously the dressing room's much different, kind of falling away and uh with everything I'd gone through, some mental health issues, my dad just said uh he called hockey ministries and there was a guy named Lori Boschman and uh, we met up and he was kind of a support system for me and just kind of led me down to that path, knowing that I had a purpose once again. And uh, just a funny, funny, if you watch the personalities on radio and TV, Lori was just one of those big personalities and uh, ended up being in my wedding party and in touch to this uh, day and just a great mentor for me. And on days off, I'd go there for dinner, just have a normal place to talk to and hang out with his kids as well. So yeah, great person. Well, after you won the Memorial Cup with Ottawa, Chapter 8 finds you following a girl onto the campus of the University of Western Ontario in London, where you spent a really positive five years of not only playing hockey and succeeding, but you also earned your degree. You gained a wife and a life partner. Talk about your days in London. You get to that precipice where you're trying to figure out, do you want to keep chasing the uh, professional dream or what should I do with school? And uh, I've been offered some AHL East Coast deals, and the AHL deals usually are about seventy thousand dollars but but people don't realize if you get sent down to the east coast league it sometimes drops to eighteen twenty thousand dollars and you're traveling four days a week so 
near the end of the summer, I, I met my wife, uh, uh, Jesse, and uh, and she said she was going to Western. I remember calling the coach two days before the Labor Day weekend and saying, uh, uh, "The only room on the team for someone that wants to come there." And he's like, "We'll make room." So uh, I ended up signing up for university five days before it started, and uh, and she went there. And uh, I think when you make that commitment, you realize you're probably going to have to get married eventually. <laughs> Better make sure I uh, tell my parents that this was the right decision that I made, and uh, we ended up winning it. National championship, the only one in Western's history, and uh, probably I always say this was great, and this this was probably the greatest period of five years of hockey in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, not only did you have great success there, but now as a young married couple, you realize you had a chance to see the world, so to speak. And chapter nine sees you go overseas, taking your wife and your hockey talents to Deutschland, Germany. This opened your eyes just into a different style of play than you were taught and used to in Canada. How did you adjust to playing hockey in the German professional league? Well, first of all, I knew it was time to go because my last year at university, I was married and the double cohort had come in. So I was 25 and married and there's these 17, 18 year olds coming on campus. And I said to my wife, I think it's time for us to go. So, uh, yeah, when we got to Germany, I remember the first shift, I dumped the puck in cross ice dump, which Brian Kilroy always loved. And my coach came back and he's like, uh, Justin, we, we have the puck. You give them the puck. You're like, we keep the puck. And you're like, oh, I never thought of that. Like, maybe we should carry it. Like the game is today with zone possession. And then our defense would take the puck behind the net and, uh, just stand there and all four guys would change. And then four new guys would come on and then the D would change. And then all of a sudden you realize like we're keeping the puck possession and we're changing and it's not just dump and change like you're taught in Canada. So it was great insight for me as well. And I played in the third league because I could make more money and play less. And uh, that was the goal of my career. And they had mesh behind the net. So if you can picture that, this seems like a hundred years ago, but it was like a trampoline mesh. So you'd line up for a face off and some guy would be blowing cigarette smoke in your face or you'd dump it in and the puck would like ricochet like a trampoline back. And uh, it was you know what it brought me back kind of to my roots and just made me laugh at hockey and, and it was a great experience and dev jess there with me too is uh it was awesome as well well you certainly made the most of it not only with the hockey experience but but traveling you got to see a lot of different places justin chapter 10 sees you return home to finish your hockey career successfully with another championship playing senior hockey with the dundas real mccoys you have reunited with Spud, the potato farmer, and uh, this was kind of before you called it quits for good. Why did you decide to play a few more years of senior hockey? Yeah, it wasn't really completely hockey. It wasn't out of my system, and I played in Guelph in this men's league one night, and someone invited me out, and it was 11 at night, and I was getting slashed and and cross-checked, and you're, these guys will always want to test to see if they could have played in the NHL or had your career by 11 o'clock at night on a, on, in a men's B league. And, uh, and I'd get home and couldn't fall asleep to 2 o'clock. And, uh, and Spud called me one time, and he just said, uh, would you like to play in Dundas? And I said, well, how much money is it? Can I make something out of this? And he's like, well, we've, we've got a beer fridge. <laughs> that's all he said. And, uh, and, uh, and he said, we've got a great dressing room and the banter. And that's the part of hockey that you never get rid of you just miss that dressing room banter, that uh, transition into life. So yeah, I ended up, I was going to play one year and then two years, and then it just kept getting extended. And uh, I couldn't really get that out of my system until we won uh, on home ice. And I said, that's it. That was the perfect way to end my actual hockey career. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got Christopher Stieg, Hal Johnson, David Cinnamon, Alan Frew, and Chuck Swirsky. 
So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now that you are a published author, Justin, I want to ask about the reaction to your book. And let's, let's break it down into the various constituent groups. Your kids. How did your kids react to this book? Yeah, you're the first one to ask that. It's funny, when I was writing it, I was writing these deep personal things and my kids would be walking around making toast or watching TV and not really knowing what I was doing on the computer. So I remember they read the early manuscripts and didn't really say much. And uh, and it was just funny to see their reaction. And I, I, they really haven't shared much, but I was at their high school the other day picking them up and I saw a couple uh, kids in the bleachers uh, during this tournament. I was out reading the book as well. So that was really weird to me that and not only even our kids at my school reading it, but their friends are reading it. And uh, yeah, it makes you, it makes you anxious inside, but hopefully they know, uh, can understand me a little more, but uh, uh, you know, teenage kids, you don't really get a whole lot of feedback. <laughs> True enough. I live in that world as well. <laughs> and Justin, how about your parents? And I can imagine how difficult this was because a lot of the stuff they wouldn't have known, now they're reading about it and perhaps they're feeling some guilt when really the reality is, even if they had known, you would have said, no, you ain't picking me up. I'm, I'm staying. So how did your parents react to learning all this? Well, that was my, my journey when I told them, I was saying, I, I'm afraid to, to say things. I didn't tell my parents even wrote a book. And uh, when the book eventually got purchased by uh, ECW, uh, my wife said, you're, you're probably going to have to drive up and tell your parents you wrote a book. So I remember driving <laughs> up and, and, and telling them I wrote a book, it's coming out in a year. And they hadn't read it till it got published with the rest of the world. So uh, I can imagine their anxiety for a year, just wondering what's in it and what it's about. And uh, I wrote a part in there. My dad said, if he had known uh, all this stuff that had happened with the hazing world and the hockey world that happened to me, like he would have come and picked me up. And I, I said to him, dad, like I wouldn't have gone, like you're so far immersed, you're four or five years and you're almost, it's almost like a cult where you're just immersed in the behavior and that becomes you. And you think these things are normal. So uh, I wouldn't have come. And so they feel some guilt, but at the same time, uh, they said they were promised things by the adults in the room and they were, they were told that these people are going to take care of me and, and you trust that when they say that face to face. So uh, as a parent, I would have expected the same thing. So uh, I don't blame my family for anything. And if anything, I, I was lucky that I had the upbringing that I did. Well, one big constituent group would be former coaches, former teammates. The hockey culture has traditionally been what's said in the room, stays in the room. What's been the feedback from former coaches and teammates? Well, that that was a huge anxiety of writing all this. Just like, well, how are people going to react, right? Because you have that, you don't want to be the whistleblower or the guy that people feel like you're a whiner, or you weren't tough. And that's what I write in the book. I know people are going to, I thought they'd just come after how I played, and uh, but they haven't. It, it's shocking to me that the toughest guys that I played with and the guys that like we feared are reaching out and saying, I'm dealing with some serious issues. And I'm glad you wrote this because I've never told my wife what I'm feeling. And so it's facilitated discussion. Uh, Ken Reed, when I started this process, said, if you want, I'll give you one piece of advice. Don't read the comments on any of your podcasts or any of the stuff you write. So I I haven't read any of that. So I'm sure there might be negative feedback there, but I've had, I was at a, a period where I was getting an email or a text a day, just very personal from guys I played with or uh, guys that I played against just saying thank you. And, uh, and I thought I had a bad and I read some of the things that happened to these guys. And I'm like, my story is like not even close to what happened to some people. My hazing isn't even close to what happened to some people. And, uh, and I didn't even share like the worst stuff that happened because I don't want people to see me in that light. So 
if people say this is like a, I, I've got an axe to grind. I didn't, I'm not out to get money. I'm not out to do these things. I just want to fix the game. So from that aspect, the players have been awesome. And, uh, and, and I couldn't have expected the reaction that I got to be any better. And my understanding is that one of the coaches who you were highly critical of and, and did not name, you were very surprised they reached out to you after this book came out. Yeah. And, and he's a current OHL coach, a coach in the NHL. And it's funny, I just, you don't know where people are coming from on their side as well. But when I wrote it, I, I like I, I said to him, I, I just had to write my piece in it. And uh, I saw his name come up on my phone and I, I hung up the first time. And I'm like, I don't, I'm 45, I've got three kids and I'm still afraid of like my junior coach. I'm like, what is going on? And eventually I just said, hey, you got to have this discussion. If you're going to put, talk about him, then I at least owe it to him to get his background. So he was great. Uh, he shared his side of the story, which I didn't really know the background that much was the pressure coming from the general manager and a lot of the things that he was told to do. And the reason he left the organization two years later was because of what was going on in the organization and what a, a hockey terminology, like what a sideshow things were up there. And uh, so it was great. And I had Spud was one of the first guys to reach out as well and say, like, I'm sorry for anything that happened to you. And I laughed because when we had a rookie party, he's the only coach that sent to assistant coach coaches to make sure that everyone was taken care of things were what he asked and it was almost like a felt like an adult like just kind of get together party with people mingling and uh so he didn't owe me apology for anything but he's the first one to reach out with uh uh saying that he was sorry if anything happened so only one coach one coach never reached out and has denied everything and that's kind of what i expected but i'm okay with that and uh it was kind of some closure for me on some ends as well well, it must be such a catharsis for you. I mean, I can't imagine the weight m must have come off you and you got blah, downloaded everything and now it's published. And uh, as you say, you're surprised at some of the positive feedback you got that you may not have expected. Yeah. And that's, there was a period where um, I was told that the coach never contacted me. I was told that he denied a lot that was going on and said that would never happen under his watch. And I had that anxiety thinking, did I write something false? Like, did I in this point, did I slander somebody that this never happened? And then I got texts uh, from former players. So it was almost like they knew that I played with saying, no, the exact same th thing happened to me the next year and word for word, exactly the same stuff. So uh, when you talk with that anxiety or that catharsis feeling after, that was just a relief where, okay, yeah, I, I was on the right page and I told the story and there's some things that other people have to deal with too. Well, there will be some listeners that are going to say, well, that was, you know, that's all been resolved now. As some people may or may not know, you actually started this project before everything hit the fan with Hockey Canada, and certainly things have changed by now. You obviously get asked, I'm sure, every day if hockey culture is indeed changing or if it is still toxic. And sure enough, just in the last few days, it was announced that Niagara Ice Dogs and its management were fined $150,000 in total. Two of their players, including the team captain, have been kicked out of the Ontario Hockey League and the team's general manager has received a two-year suspension for violating league policies and its code of conduct with respect to maltreatment, bullying, and harassment. Justin, when you hear this news, does it make it like frustrate you that nothing's changing, or are you still positive and optimistic that hockey culture is changing? Well, I'm glad you said that, first of all, because uh, when people see this, I think the reaction now, that they don't realize this has been a four-year process when I started this. So this was written before Hockey Canada, before all this stuff uh, that, that's come out. So I was telling my story. This wasn't, a, okay, I'm going to react to this. And that's why it was weird when the book first came out that the first question I was 
getting. I was expecting, oh, your story, you shared all this. They're like, we want you to come on CBC and uh, talk about Hockey Canada, what's hockey culture. So that wasn't really what the book uh, dove deep into, but it's been great that my book has allowed me to tell the story. So I think hockey culture has gotten better. So I talk about incidents like the hot box and these hazing incidents that were brutal. That element's been taken out, but we still have that culture that we're ingraining in people uh, from the time that they're six and seven years old. I mean, when you're paying $15,000 to play 12 months a year in the GTHL and you hang out with these people and you're being led by people that uh, grew up in my generation, that this is a hockey player, uh, it's really tough to break that stigma. So it's very disappointing to see the Niagara, the Niagara stuff coming out and that uh, we don't know the the details, but I think our mind goes to to terrible places because, I mean, we've seen so many bad things happen in the league and nobody's been expelled from the league. So to get expelled from the league, I, I hope it's not as bad as what we think it is. But this is still going on out there. And the reason I tell my story is I just want kids to feel that it's all right to share things. It's all right to say no if someone's making you do something and to hold teams accountable to have a mentor in place or just a former player or somebody that kids can talk to for their mental health and and just to stop the stuff from going on. This is it's tough to break the cycle. It's not going to happen a year or two, but th- a lot of this stuff's been going on for 60, 70 years. You had a really positive experience post-playing career and before your high school coaching, coaching young ladies, girls hockey. Do you feel the same toxic hockey culture issues exist in women's hockey as well? Or did you find there was kind of a gender specific specificity to it. Yeah. Interesting. I found number one, the girls, when I coached the girls team, it's, uh, they didn't, they didn't tell me they knew everything and question it. When I actually said something, they listened and they went and did it. So it was just this refreshing attitude of like, we're getting great instruction and thank you for the help as opposed to no, uh, we know what we're doing. It's okay. So that was number one. Uh, and it was just a great see hockey played at a high level. I took my kids to see the, my girls to see the world championship Canada US game and uh, a couple weeks ago. And it's awesome to see groups of girls teams there and uh, at women's league teams there. And, and it were even just like two guys, just buddies having a beer watching it. So that part was awesome. And it made me think exactly to your question is what did these girls go through the junior level or university level? And, and what's their culture? What's the culture within the hockey? Cause it's fascinating to me. And it's funny, I was exploring, a, writing a, some new things on paper right now, and I'm going through it. And that's that's actually what I'm going through is the culture in other sports and culture in uh, female sports. And is this just a male-dominated thing? So we'll leave that question for another time. Yes. Well, there's lots more to explore for sure. I want to know, since your memoir was published, you've received so much attention for it. You've been on lots of TV shows, podcasts. How have things changed at the high school where you not only teach, but you coach the hockey team. Mr. Davis is a uh, celebrity now, or ha- what's, what's been the feedback from your kid? And Mr. Davis actually played hockey. I think that's what, that's what changed. I used to tell them they didn't believe it, but I guess because now it's on the record that Mr. Davis actually played hockey. So, uh, the, the good part is the teachers at our school are fantastic. And, uh, they've been studying at the grade 11, 12 men more, uh, unit. And just the fact with kids being on their phone, six, seven hours a day that to have kids reading a book, is I thought, you know what, if they look at me a bit different, but they're reading a book and actually uh, going through that, that's great. And if it helps me with the guys, uh, hockey team that I'm coaching and kind of the mentorship and being a mentor for male students in the school, then that's something that I really uh, look forward to. But I was nervous. <laughs> you, you think the kid passing in the hall that knows kind of the, the sexual hazing and some of the things that you went through, is it awkward? But uh, 
I've been through worse and uh, the kids have actually been really good. And it's funny to have kids stop you in the hall and ask you questions. Like uh, the one kid said, uh, Mr. Davis, what's the worst hazing thing that you've been through? Just when I was walking through the hall and I, I said, you know what, the worst hazing stuff I've been through isn't in the book. And I am not ready to tell you that yet. And, uh, and he kind of had a laugh and we kept going. So the kids have been awesome. And wouldn't you say the biggest thing that comes out of this in terms of a positive is communication. To me, it strikes me just the ability to have open communication uh, really seems like that's been a positive outcome. Yeah. And that's the difference, right? When, I mean, I don't know, uh, Daryl Sutter, like coaching the Calgary Flames and who he is as a person. I'm sure he's a great person, but I think the, the communication side of things and being up front for the new generation of hockey players and, and coaches and being involved in hockey, kids want to know why, right? It's the first question they ask when you tell them to do something as well. Why would I do that? So yeah. I mean, I talk in the book about being healthy scratched where I, I sat on the bus for five hours, got off the bus, did warm up, and then I didn't play a shift. And then I got back on the bus and came back to my billet's house and nobody said why. And communication, if he had just said, hey, we're going to the game tonight, you're probably not going to play because we're not happy with this. But tomorrow night we're going to address you and uh, we want you to just show us uh, this part of your game that's been lacking and go on. And just simple communication. And, and that's what's been really missing. So I hope the next generation of coaches for junior hockey or even triple A hockey or double A just communicate to kids what they see and why they're doing things. And, and it just changes everything. So you're not going to bed wondering why something happened. I want to switch gears a little, Justin, and ask you about the topic of gambling in sports. We just had Steve McAllister on the podcast and he explained that we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the growth of sports gambling and iGaming. And I wonder what your thoughts are on gambling and sports and the effects on teenagers and junior hockey. Yeah. And, uh, just to let your listeners know, I'm sure if they've listened to this, they listened to all your podcasts, but it was, it was actually a great conversation and, uh, I enjoyed listening to that on the way home and give me some insight as well. So uh, I have a 17 year old son who's asking me for a FanDuel account and, uh, I teach students that I see with gambling accounts in, in the school and people say, well, they're not the proper age to do it. They're finding ways around it and they're using their parents' credit cards. And when you watch the Leaf game the other night, I think I counted like 18 different gambling advertisements and even the hosts are going so far to give you over-unders and adding into part of their broadcast. And when I think about junior hockey players, the things they deal with, <laughs> I don't know what's stopping you from gambling on your own game. I don't know what's stopping you from gambling on... Uh, the other team, or when you're making 55 or $60 a week, but you can make a bet and that can maybe just alter something. We're talking about, we talk about in my health class about the uh, undeveloped frontal lobe <laughs> with these kids to their 21, 22 years old, and they're not making great decisions. So the gambling component, the way they're being marketed to, and the fact that you can gamble on junior hockey and uh, and people could have their friends do this, I think it's something that hasn't been investigated and, and really worries me. We talk about hazing and all these different items, but uh, it, it's going to have a huge impact on our world in the next couple of years. And being a high school teacher, I can see it firsthand. And I think junior hockey is really going to have to start looking into uh, uh, how they protect themselves from it. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how that whole industry evolves. Justin, let's end with something lighter and a little quirky. Through your agent, Alan Walsh, I think you had a weird connection to lawyer Bill Hodgman, who not only was a part of the prosecution team during the O.J. Simpson murder trial, but also successfully prosecuted death row records had shook Knight for a probation violation. Is this accurate? And, and what is your connection to the O.J. Simpson murder trial? 
Yeah, I hope uh, I hope your listeners like I remember growing up like just sitting in front of the screen and watching those OJ trials like just every day. It was like a a soap opera. So when I met Alan, part of his bio that he handed out was that he had worked on the case and uh, in the prosecution team. So it just fascinated me. And I met with him the first time just because I wanted to find out things and tell me some stuff off the record. And uh, he was hilarious. And then you find out that uh, you're right. He had prosecuted all these gangs and and these people. And then you meet Alan and he's, I don't, sorry, I don't want to talk badly about him, but I think he's about five, six, five, seven and five, nine, five, 10 with his cowboy boots on and you meet him and he's just this small guy, but just this huge personality. So yeah, that was, that was the reason I signed with that. It was funny. I was looking for a new agent and then I'm like, this guy may know hockey. I don't even know, but the fact he was on the OJ case and I might get some insight into this, this is a, a big deal. So when we talk about teenage brain not being fully developed, uh, yeah, it's funny how this is still even comes up today that this is a, a big deal, but it, but it was. And for our generation, uh, yeah, it's, it's a trial we'll never forget. <laughs> well, I want to give a shout out to your literary agent, Brian Wood. He uh, had the excellent suggestion to have you on the show. So I appreciate Brian and I appreciate you making the time. Justin, where do you recommend we go to get your book, Conflicted Scars, An Average Player's Journey to the NHL? Yeah, it's available at uh, Indigo and Chapter stores, uh, ecw.com and amazon.ca. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And a uh, shout out to Brian too. Brian took a chance on someone like me that was a nobody and uh, he knew he wasn't going to make maybe the most money he's ever made off a book, but he wanted these stories to be told. And the fact it's evolved here today to talking to you and numerous other people's has been great. So uh, pick up the book and, uh, and give it a read and hopefully enjoy it. I, I second that. I really enjoyed reading it. And I want to thank you so much for your time today. And Justin, I want to wish you continued success going forward. Perfect. Thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Justin Davis, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.